Hi everyone, welcome to Type Talks. Today we have the ENTJ work panel. And so Jeff, would you like to tell us a bit about you? Yes, the beginning of my work life, I just sort of floundered because I dropped out of school. I didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, I don't think that's type related. I think that's my parents didn't tell me anything. Uh, and uh, just sort of bounced around at jobs. I ended up in the driving a taxi while deciding to go back to college and finish. And uh, I fell into that group because there was a group of them that were starting a company. So I got into the corporation that started this taxi company and, uh, it, you know, was on the board. I was treasurer in the beginning and then got out of that. And I, and I bought a business of uh, uh, moving in storage, a small comp two trucks and had that for several years. And then I went on and went back into the taxi business. And I've been in it ever since, except now I'm in the limousine business. And so I've been running a business, been self-employed, running my own show all that time. So it, may, it, it just happened. And that's why I'm still doing that. You made it happen, which is amazing. And Jeff is also the president of the Sacramento Association of Psychological Type. And John? Hi there. Um, so I grew up in uh, Western Pennsylvania, and uh, in my high school years, I discovered a, uh, a genuine love and passion for music. Um, and so I did a lot of, uh, I took some voice lessons, and I knew I wanted to do something in the music industry uh, as I was, um, you know, graduating. Um, and I would have loved to go for music performance. Uh, however, the more financially stable option for musicians is often to teach. Um, so I, uh, I did go for my bachelor's degree um, at Messiah College for music education. Um, and, uh, you know, in the midst of receiving my degree and even afterwards, I worked a host of um, uh, food service jobs. I worked for McDonald's for four years, um, and then I worked um, at Starbucks um, as a uh, first a barista, then a barista trainer, and then a coffee master. Um, and I was there for about five years. I ended in November of this past year. I kind of miss it a little bit. Um, and uh, as a teacher, uh, I have now been working as a teacher at a school in Maryland for four years doing uh, music classes, uh, a mixture of chorus and general music. Um, and uh, I am, this year I was also the department chair for all of the cultural arts classes. Um, and I did a couple other management um, opportunities within the, within the county that I teach as well. Um, so that is where I currently am. Sounds good. I love the fast pace to your voice. It's very uh, T-E and S-E. <laughs> Gonna move forward fast, fast, fast. It's good. Efficient. I'll try to slow that down a little bit. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, wasn't, I wasn't making fun of it. I think that it's very efficient. Um, it's good. And Dana? Yeah, my name's Dana. Um, oh, geez, career. I don't know if you can call it a career. Um, my parents were self-employed, so that was sort of the like introduction I had to like what do careers look like. And um, when I met my now husband, like we spent a lot of time talking about if starting a business was something that was actually a good fit for us. Um, but ultimately decided, mm, yeah, no, probably not if we're trying to balance that with also raising a family. So um, I've been professional staff in higher ed for almost 12 years now. And uh, prior to that, my first job after I finished college was uh, working for a nonprofit for a couple of years. Um, 
a lot of that is sort of counter to, I mean, like I'm a business major, um, a lot of that is counter to the directions that I think a lot of my undergraduate classmates went. Um, you know, like a lot of them went on and did, you know, like Fortune 500 big business jobs. And uh, I wasn't sure that that was a great fit for me either. So a lot of it's been just sort of like eliminating things that seemed like they weren't the best fit. And then <laughs> from there, sort of organically figuring out what worked for me. So um, within the last 10 to 12 years, um, what I primarily do is work with research teams that are working on multi-year federally funded grants. So I usually provide operations support, um, research support, sometimes budget support for teams that are working on these sort of large, gnarly research problems. Everything from conservation to uh, we're working on a climate change grant right now. So like it's interesting to be really close to the research, um, but I'm not trained as a researcher and that suits me fine. Um, there's lots of people who are really, really motivated and dedicated to it. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to be there and be able to help support them in some of the business functions that aren't necessarily well trained in academia. I mean, that's just not part of the, the training that a lot of academics get. So um, yeah, it's been great. I've had like a four to five year arc with each project the last couple of years. Um, so I kind of get to reinvent myself about every four to five years and that keeps me from getting bored. So yeah, that's me. That's really interesting. And Kat? Hi, I'm Kat. Where to start? So I grew up in Florida and then after college, I followed my partner to Sweden and then London and was kind of like, what do I do with this sociology degree? It doesn't really have like a, <laughs> an obvious trajectory. I'd meant to go to law school, but, um, decided not to in the end. Um, so I fell into recruiting and I started working. Um, I've worked for a few years um, at an agency recruiting like finance professionals. So it was more kind of on the headhunting end of things, but um, which was sort of exciting because I had a lot of agency, which I think was great, especially as like a, you know, 23, 24 year old to kind of sort of build your business and have your own desk. But it was very um, at the end of the day, it was more of a sales job than anything. And there were a lot of like targets to hit all the time, which was, I found very stressful. And I had to kind of push people sometimes into roles that maybe weren't the best career moves for them. Um, if that makes sense, uh, stop doing that because it just really wasn't working well for me. I had a lot of, it was, I found it very stressful, um, traveled for like a year, um, and then moved to New York City for um, my partner. To, he went to grad school in New York and I worked for quite a while. Well, not quite a while. I worked for a short time in um, a large bank where I did recruiting in-house. And it was, it was actually a really, really good role for me because I had, I was the only person in the office that was sort of in charge of recruiting. So I could kind of just do it the way that I wanted to do it. Nobody really bothered me. Um, and I had access to very senior people and I could sort of build my own recruitment strategy. So I loved that, but then I left to go to grad school. And um, after grad school, I worked for a little while for um, Ray Dalio's hedge fund. I don't know if people are familiar. Ray Dalio! Oh my gosh. <laughs> Which Ray was Dalio. a full experience. Um, as you can imagine, it's, it's a very bizarre and interesting place. Um, Left there, um, spent seven years raising two little kids who are not that little anymore. And then for the past almost six years, I've been doing um, basically property investing. I buy 
um, single family row houses in Philly um, that are distressed. I rehab them, rent them out, and I'm sort of trying to build my real estate empire and manage the properties myself in the meantime. So it's been, uh, actually I'm really, really, really loving what I'm doing and I'm very energized by it. There's a lot to, I have like so much autonomy, obviously, um, which is great. I sort of, for the most part, I manage my own hours, my own schedule. I kind of put in the work that I wanna put in uh, for the most part at any given time. And it's been really cool because I've been able to learn so many different aspects. So there's like, the property management piece, like the tenant piece, the sort of marketing piece, the rehab piece, the um, we did a flip. So we, you know, trying to learn how to flip a house. There's just been a lot of learning. And even after six years, like almost six years, it's like, I still don't really completely know what I'm doing, <laughs> which is exciting. So there's always like something new. Um, so yeah, that's me in a nutshell. That's awesome. Yeah. What would an ENTJ be without their empire? I'm kidding. <laughs> but oh uh, well. Ray Dalio, for people who don't know, he wrote the book Principles, and he's actually into the Myers Briggs because he talks about the Myers Briggs in that book. All right. Cool. And Ni. Nee? Thanks for having us, Joyce. Um, my name is Ni, nee, and uh, I was born in Canada, and my family moved to the U.S. when I was younger. Yeah, in college, I was an English major, and I remember I was getting close to graduation day. Uh, this was around the bottom of the recession, and I was getting more anxious. And my parents were wondering, like, me, what's your game plan? What are you going to do with an English degree? And I remember going back to my dorm room, sitting down and Googling, what should I do with my life? Because I had no clue what I wanted to do. I knew that I didn't want to go to grad school immediately. I wasn't really sure what I would have studied, um, but I felt a sense of pressure to get a job and start my career and pay back some of the student loans I had at the time. Um, um, so while that was happening, my friend and I were working on this startup idea. And on a whim, we decided to apply to this accelerator uh, out in the Bay Area, this tech accelerator in Silicon Valley. And then I remember one day my friend and I were grabbing a bowl of pho. Uh, he gets a notification on his phone. Um, he checks it and we find out we got into the program. And so I remember going back to my dorm and telling my roommates, hey, I know we were trying to figure out whether we we're gonna renew our lease uh, and, and stay together and, and whatnot, uh, but I'm gonna pack a suitcase. So I packed a suitcase. I, um, I bought a one-way ticket out to the Bay Area with 65 bucks to my name with no idea where I was gonna live or what I was gonna do. I just knew that this was gonna be a life-changing opportunity. So I went out there and we went through this, uh, we were working on a startup um, that was sponsored by Google and a venture capital firm. And in, in essence, like there were these mentors that would give us advice on how to start a startup. And one of the most valuable pieces of information or nuggets they gave us is if you want to build a great product or if you want to build a great company, you must first build a great product. To build a great product, you have to understand the needs of the people you're building a product for. So stop brainstorming ideas on a whiteboard and go out in the real world and go talk to people. And it was such a novel concept. And it was like, that's so painfully obvious. Why haven't we not done that? So we went out to the streets of like San Francisco and Stanford talking to potential users to try to understand what their needs were. And at the end, we tried to raise a million dollars for seed round. We totally failed at doing that, but we learned an immense amount. And that's what got me interested in uh, research and understanding people. Uh, and so um, from there, I transitioned in, into, uh, like slowly transitioned into doing research for companies um, to understand, you know, if you're gonna build a product um, how do we best design the product to meet the needs of our, our customers? So I work in tech um, and right now work at uh, Weight Watchers 
um, studying people's relationship to food and understanding how do we best position um, a company like that in the marketplace. And then the side job that I've had for maybe close to 10 years now has been helping people find jobs uh, and clarify the career goals, specifically minorities and women in tech. Uh, and so that's been very fulfilling to do uh, because we all have gifts and talents, but sometimes it's difficult to know how to best use them or how to find the right type of role. So that's a little bit about my background. Really, really awesome stuff, Nee. And he has also worked for Personality Hacker as well. And so, hi, my name is Joyce and I'm a certified MBTI master practitioner and I facilitate the instrument in organizations. I also coach people and I also help people find out their best fit type in the MBTI and in the Enneagram. All right, and so I'm wondering about the ENTJ approach to work. How do you hypothesize that ENTJs may approach work differently than other types, or other people in your workplace? There are a lot of things that come to mind, but one thing that comes immediately to mind that I've been sort of noticing a lot lately and reflecting on a lot is that something that feels very natural to me is this sort of like ability to kind of like cut through to like what are like the most key elements of any given thing that are really going to actually make like the most impact and like to focus in on those things. And I'm noticing around me, it seems just like so obvious, but I'm noticing around me that a lot of folks really get caught up on like details that don't really matter or like just extraneous stuff that's really like draining their energy or or they're losing focus as a result. And I think we do maybe lose some little pieces, but we we actually get the thing done. <laughs> and we, not that other people aren't getting it done, but I, I'm just noticing a lot lately around me, a lot of folks getting sucked into a lot of things that are um, either expensive or time consuming and aren't really making that much of an impact. Yeah, you're noticing what will get you the most bang for your buck. What are the leverage points? What would have the most impact if you were to do these things? Yeah, that's a really good use of your time. I recently recorded the ISFP careers panel and how they answered how they approach work differently is they're like, whatever they do do, they end up doing it as perfect as they possibly can because it's a representation of their FI, their identity, but they tend to not get a lot done. So it's like the opposite approach. Something that I've noticed about the way that I approach uh, work, no matter if it's working at a fast food place, whether it's working as a teacher, is that there's this general sense of there's a lot of things that are expected. So the if the expectations of this job are, you know, 50 items, there's probably about 10 of those, which one are going to take the most time and two, again, are going to give us the best bang for our buck because checking off all 50 items on this list with the time that I'm given and, and been paid for is not doable. And you see this a lot in the teaching profession. Um, um, every teacher, well, maybe not every teacher, that's a generalization, but a lot of teachers will tell you that they end up taking their work home. Uh, they end up doing their planning at home, their grading at home. Sometimes they even contact parents from home to handle behavior problems. Um, and amongst my colleagues, uh, this is very common. I've had them ask me, how is it that you don't do that? Because I'll tell them, when I leave school, I do not work. And they're like, how do you make that happen? Or, uh, you know, in some, case, the, in some cases, there's a little bit of, a, of an edge there. Like, how are you able to do this? But we can't. Like, clearly, that means you must be doing something wrong. And the simple answer is just that there's this very 
it just comes very easily to me to know what those tasks are that absolutely need to get done and which will give me the biggest bang for my buck. And how can I make them overlap a little bit? You know, how can I kill two birds with one stone so that when I leave school, even if say the, there are still 15 minor items on that list that I didn't achieve that day, they're not really consequential. And, um, I think part of the superpower that I have uh, as, as an ENTJ is to just sort of push that aside and say, I'm just not going to feel bad about that because I gave it my all today and I got a lot of stuff done. So um, if the expectation is up here and all I was capable of, of achieving at my best was, you know, maybe 80% of what was expected of me, that's all that can be asked of me. And I did my best. So I res uh, resonate a lot with what you said, Kat. Um, it's very similar to what I do. And, and I find when I think about work, and of course, to me, I almost don't separate work and the rest of my life. I mean, I just, anything I want to do, I, I, I use this term, analyze and organize. It seems to me the TE is about analyze and organize. And, and it's very clear that a whole lot of other people can do some things better than me. And I often try to delegate to them, for example, the feeling parts, the consideration of other people, the, the thing about saying, hi, how are you, before you get into what you want. <laughs> I don't like to do that. <laughs> I like to call up somebody and say, I want this, or you know, I'm about this, or this is why I'm calling. And I, uh, so anyway, I, I just feel that I'm very focused. A lot of people are, are probably focused on other things, the human elements, the, the feeling parts, the enjoyment of life. I'm, to me, to enjoy life, it's more about getting things done. So it just seems there's a, there's a focus that I enjoy. I enjoy accomplishing something. Um, so, it, and I know, and but I've come to more and more realize that I can do better if other people can put those parts into my life you know, in some way. Analyze and organize is a great way to put extroverted thinking. And that's what separates it from extroverted sensing, actually, because both of these functions can actually be action oriented in different ways, but there are a few key distinctions between them. Whereas like with extroverted thinking, like in the ENTJ and in the ESTJ, it is actually very organized, it's very structured. And so that, that's a, a key difference that makes it different than extroverted sensing because extroverted sensing is more of a, it can launch itself into action because it, it's very experiential and it, and, and it can be relaxed at one moment, but then it can leap into action almost like a resting cat that notices a moth that's moving and it's like moth moving and then I'll, I'll go do the thing. But it, ha it doesn't have organization and structure that the ENTJ has. So I just wanted to separate that because there are sometimes like, extroverted sensing dominant types tend to sometimes confuse themselves for ENTJs very often. So that's a huge key distinction is that they don't organize and they don't structure things, which, but TE users do. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, Dana and me. I was just going to say, uh, even from the descriptions amongst this group of how we sort of found our way into our, you know, respective careers, um, Something that I've noticed is um, ENTJs in particular seem to be really comfortable with ambiguity. Um, you know, whether it's John's description of, oh, hey, you know, there's this grouping of things that, you know, I'm not going to be able to prioritize today. And I'm kind of OK with that to like zooming way out, like getting some altitude on maybe like your career planning and 
you know, like being comfortable, like thinking about interrogating, but also not needing to like land on that one exact perfect career fit. I mean, like we all seem pretty comfortable with kind of like finding our way and seeing what comes of it and using that introverted intuition to, you know, like inform that process as it relates to our work. Like we all enjoy work. We all enjoy closing loops, but it's not necessarily driven by um, an identity that isn't like flexible. Plus one of what some of you shared about, I feel like ENTJs, we have a knack for being able to cut through all the noise and get to the bottom line. I like to think of it, think of it as a Prater's principle, basically applying, applying Prater's principle or the 80-20 rule to any situation and, and seeing what's the 20% that's gonna account for 80% of the results. I feel like something that also probably resonates for you is being a long-term thinker, I think in a lot of work environments and contexts, it's so easy for people to think about here and now and be very short-term oriented in their thinking and be very reactionary, um, reacting to whether it's reacting to what is happening on, with the stock price or what's happening in the market or reacting to a boss or manager or situation and being very short-term oriented and not stepping out and saying, where are we going? Like, or, or Do we even know where we're going? Do we even have a clear why? Are we, have we challenged and questioned our assumptions or are we just going? And I feel like a lot of times it's easy to just be um, moving chairs around on the Titanic and not realize that the whole ship is sinking and maybe we need to go somewhere else. Uh, and so I think that's also something that's probably very natural for us. I know it's something that definitely resonates is being able to see the long-term implications um, and to help try to bring that to a conversation. Yeah, and with ENTJs too, something that separates them from other people in the workplace is they're relatively a little bit on the quicker side to action than you know maybe their INTJ counterpart. Once they have a, a good enough solid gist of the situation, they're willing to jump into the situation and get feedback and then adjust as the feedback gives them information. And so some people need to wait forever to get started, but ENTJs are like, all right, we did enough forethought and we did a good enough follow forethought and we're gonna jump in and try and adjust as the situation changes. Yeah, the, the thought occurred to me that I, I think I'm constantly evaluating. So so what you were saying, Nee, about uh, some people might get involved in something that doesn't have a long-term place or need. I think I, I'm aware of that a lot. Uh, somebody will say, let's do this. And I'll say, wait a minute, that doesn't really matter for what at least I want to get it accomplished later or something like that. So I might say that I, I don't do that. Somebody else can do that or if they care about it. So I think I'm always evaluating, is this really something I want to be doing? I, I find more and more as I've been busier that I don't have the time to wander around in my thoughts and, and read books and things that I used to do and I enjoy doing. But right now the thought of that sort of doesn't feel good because I do have some things I want to accomplish. I really like sort of speaking to one of your points, Jeff, I really love um, kind of checking in with the people that are doing the work for me, like on a pretty regular basis, because sometimes we'll start a project and we have like sort of the vision for how it's going to turn out. And I mean, as so many people know, it, it when you're tearing walls open and, you know, you're finding all kinds of things and things are changing, um, I could, you know, start the thing and say, hey guys, just like do the house, like make it happen and kind of wander off and like not check in. But when I do check in, I get to see like, well, what's your experience of this? Like, 
oh, this tile is really hard to work with. Cool, let's scrap it. Let's like get a new tile. It's gonna go faster or whatever. Or, you know, we we have a choice between these two different elements. One's easier to work with, one's not. Or just even on the sense of like problem solving together, because a lot of times they'll have like an idea of like, oh, we should, you know, we'll just do it this way. And it's like, well, there, there might be a different way we could do it that would be like more efficient or, you know, just easier for you or easier on, on the guys or whatever. Um, but I really love just being in touch with like the experience of the people that work for me. Like how, how is, how is it going for them? Cause there's like sort of an idea of how we think it might be going for other people. Um, I always got really frustrated with that in former jobs where it was like, you know, you had sort of upper management being like, this is how we're going to do it. But like never really taking the time to like tap into the experience of the folks that are actually on the ground doing that thing. And I think that's so useful. And I don't I don't understand why folks don't take a moment to stop and check in. <laughs> I don't know. It seems really obvious to me, but I'm I'm noticing more and more as I get older that it's it's not it's not something that everyone does. It goes back to the 80-20 principle that Ni talked about. Well, if you check in with those people who are at the front lines doing the work and you figure out where they're having their difficulties, you can literally make it work better, make it work more efficiently and effectively. And that's the 20% of the work that's going to get you 80% of the results because changing those tiles can make everything else run smoothly. It's like noticing the root cause and then fixing those kind of things. I think there can be an important element in that feedback too. Um, you know, I find this a lot with some of the folks that I mentor, um, you know, like anybody who's had an experience, you know, like a negative experience with a manager or a supervisor where they gave, they gave candid feedback and then it was ignored or even worse, like it was weaponized against them. Um, and so, you know, I always strive as a manager to be really transparent about, you know, like, here's why I'm asking, um, not just be checking in when I think that there might be a problem, but like you said, uh, Kat, you know, checking in with them fairly regularly, like normalize, just having active dialogue about projects that are unfolding and then trying to like respond as much as you can to the feedback that you hear from them and, and be really clear, like you're not going to be upset or disappointed or weaponize it against them if it's bad news, you know, like it's not bad, it's just feedback and then we figure out what to do next. So, Yeah. I think that's like super critical and something that like you just don't see from a lot of supervisors or a lot of organizations. So speaking of feedback, how comfortable are you all with performance feedback or like getting feedback from performance reviews? I love feedback. I, I'm sure we all probably love feedback here. I was going to say like to what you shared, Dana and Kat, about checking in with people. I feel like on the flip side, we're probably very comfortable asking people for feedback about, hey, how are things going? Is there anything you know, we could do to calibrate how we're moving forward? Um, and I feel like other types can be very uh, uncomfortable with feedback or, or take it very personally. And I think ENTJs and, and, and other types have the ability to take that feedback, hold it and just look at it and observe it and say, huh, okay, let me understand the reason why they're saying what they're saying, is there a way that I, I could calibrate my approach so that they feel better um, and that we're ultimately able to get to the goal faster? So I, I, I know for me, I love feedback and I constantly ask, I had a one-on-one -on -one with my boss on Friday and I was like, hey, I wanted to get your feedback on a couple of things um, that I said and I want us to dissect it. Um, and that kind of feedback is incredibly helpful uh, to understand 
not just how to improve, but also understand how people see a situation. I think it's so fascinating. We can all look at the same exact thing and draw very different conclusions and have very different internal dialogue or stories about what's going on. And so I think it's very interesting to see like, oh, so that was your perception of the meeting. Interesting. I had a totally different take. Here's why, let's explore it. So, and then being in research, you know, trying to understand the, the why uh, is just a very natural, uh, natural part of the job. And so I'd be curious to hear other people's take, but uh, I love feedback. I feel like feedback is our friend. I definitely like feedback. I, I worry a little bit if it's negative feedback, you know, if it's, uh, I'm, I'm in my business, I'm providing a service to people. And uh, I just recently had a couple of complaints that are, you know, serious and largely my fault. Well, I could have prevented them probably if I thought, thought thought about it in advance so i i'm very i'm kind of i feel thin-skinned about that you know that i wish i wish because i want to be competent you know that business of doing a good job and being competent i want to fix it you know as fast as i can so i think i fixed it but but i'm still waiting to hear for the next shoe to drop on that on that issue so so i like the feedback um definitely and i and i use it as a way to to fix things and try to try to make it more efficient, you know, more effective, more successful. Yeah, I find ENTJs are the type probably most likely to be okay or like feedback and proactively seek it out because they want to know how they can do the thing better. And so while there are some types who are like, oh, feedback, I feel my soul's dying when I get feedback. And then there are other types who are like ENTJs that are like, yeah, if it's constructive criticism, I'd love to hear how to make this better. And not all people are like that. A lot of people are sensitive to feedback. And so it seems like a lot of ENTJs can seek feedback even on how to improve things. So they open up that realm for people to offer their input, which is, it, it is a huge personality difference I see between different types. So referencing um, personality hacker, a lot of times you'll hear, um, uh, you'll hear them discuss TE as a function that has a strong focus on amelioration or uh, sort of the betterment of systems. And you can view almost anything as a system, including yourself. So how do you make a system better? How do you ameliorate it? You have no idea if you don't have any data. So um, my, my perspective only offers me so much data. For example, if I'm in a classroom working with students, um, there are so many things happening in that classroom. There are so many data points. There's, it's impossible for me to gather each of those data points and you know, every last one of them. Um, but when I've had my principals in observing me, um, I do not get nervous about that. In fact, I view that as, as a way for me to get more data to ameliorate the system of teaching that I have going on for myself. Um, and so something else that um, I associate with my TE is just this idea of competence. Like I wanna be competent at everything that I'm doing. And so my goal is never to assume that I am that I am the best. My goal is always to want to be the best. And I will not be the best if I am afraid of receiving feedback, which is the data that will help me to ameliorate my system and become the best. I think that one thing that really benefits us in this thing, this work is that we're so, we can be so objective and so it's easy to have like very clear communication with people that I work with. And I'll even start the relationship off, like I'll kind of set the stage and manage expectations from the get go. And I'll say, look, I'm a really straight shooter. Like we can just talk freely, you know, tell me what you need, tell me what you're struggling with. Like 
just keep the communication open. Don't be afraid to call me if something is going wrong. Don't be afraid to call me if something is going right. Like, let's just, you know, and I, I think I just appreciate kind of that free flow of dialogue where it's like, we don't have to worry about, we, we can literally just talk like openly about, about what's going on um, and just be really clear. Do, do you guys feel that way? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I feel that that I, I do feel that way myself, but I feel there's a lot of other people. You got to be careful how you talk to them. Uh, they they need certain things. For example, I work with somebody who's an ESFP. She's very energetic. She's in the moment. She's talking about. If I start a conversation, I, I mean, it won't end. She won't stop talking. Uh, she's just all involved with what she's doing all the time. So. When I she she's a driver in my limousine company, so when I um, <laughs> want her to do something that I know she doesn't want to do, like a certain trip in the afternoon, because she's used to having her freedom for the rest of the day and so forth, <laughs> I will start with humor. I will start with uh, you know something like a compliment. Hey, have I told you what a great person you are? And in, in in a joking way and so forth, and she'll say, "All right, what's coming here? What's what?" But I mean, I have to, I can't just be too direct with her because it doesn't work. She immediately puts up this, uh, I want my freedom. I want my total freedom to do what I want whenever I want as an ESFP. And, um, and I'm, in, I'm getting in the way of that. I'm, I'm causing a problem. So, um, yes, I'm pretty straight, but I've learned that other people aren't. And I, and I have to be careful with with how I approach him. It's just, it's kind of, a, I feel a modification or something. I would much rather be more direct, of course. And I usually am. And I get into trouble because I, I, I am more direct with people, maybe people I don't know. And, and then I find, oops, I should have been a little more careful. <laughs> something that's just tag on to what you're sharing is, I feel like sometimes, I'm sure we've all been in a situation where we ask somebody for feedback and they're like, uh-oh, well, I don't want to hurt your feelings. And we're like, look, you're not going to hurt our feelings. What, let, let's hear it. Let's hear it. I'm ready to go. And they take like this long, circuitous route and they, you know, and so like something that sometimes I like to do is once I hear that, I'm like, okay, so basically what I'm hearing you say is blank. And I'll say it as straightforward as possible um, so that they can be like, so that they can hear and, and, and see that like, look, you can be straightforward. And next time you don't have to, you don't have to sugarcoat it. Just get straight to the point. Uh, and I think sometimes it can create some relief for them as well. Like, oh, yeah, that was essentially what I was trying to say. I don't know why it took me five minutes to say that when I could have said it in 30 seconds. I think if anyone could relate to that experience of watching somebody be fearful to giving you feedback when that's all you want. Yeah, yes. I've, definitely oh, <laughs> I've definitely observed that with the students that I work with sometimes. I mean, like, you know, they're undergrads or they're early grad students. And even if I'm not their supervisor, you know, like we're still in an active team together. And when they don't understand something, like I had this happen with one of my interns this spring, they were like, okay, so we're like really grinding away on these lab projects and we don't quite understand like where these individual experiments fit into like the, like the long-term plan for this project. Um, and like my intern who's typically like on Teams chat or whatever, like he came to my office to tell me like, I don't feel like I understand what's going on. And I was like, oh, you came all the way here to have this conversation in person. Like, that's really cute. <laughs> but 
but he was super honest about like what the hang up was. And I was like, cool, got it. Like within a week or two, I will get you like an entire chart that explains how this all fits together over the next like three years for the project. So yeah, it was good feedback, but he was definitely nervous about it, even though we'd worked together for like nine months prior to that. Um, but uh, like he got what he needed, his questions got answered. And I was like, thank you for explaining like why you were nervous. So yeah, good experience. Yeah, I'm curious, how easy is it to hurt your feelings? I don't think it's very easy. It, it certainly can happen. I think I try to protect myself from getting my feelings hurt by not doing anything wrong. <laughs> you know, I think I really try to, to, to deal with everybody in a way that uh, avoids that because I don't like it. I don't want to have, you know, I don't want to be doing the wrong thing, which is what I would think would lead to be, my feelings being hurt. Yeah, essentially being incompetent or doing something wrong or being told you're wrong. Yeah. But it, if it's not like an actual attack, you're not going to infer offense where there is no offense. Well, I may I may analyze it and say, well, they're all wet. I don't have to worry about it. They're wrong. I don't have to worry about it. I think I do that a lot. You know, I, I analyze it and say, well, no, it's not me that, you know, it's the, really the reason or, or something like that, or it's inside themselves or... I think I do a lot of that as a, I don't know if it's self-protection. I, I may delude myself into thinking I'm right, you know. <laughs> I would say like it depends. I think relative to maybe other types, I think ENTJs, our feelings don't get hurt very much relative to others. But I know for me, I, my feelings still do get hurt. Um, and I feel like when they, when it does happen, it doesn't, I can get stuck in my, my emotions for a little bit, but then once I, step back from it, I'm able to bounce back pretty quickly and just like keep rolling. Um, so I, I will definitely say, yeah, my feelings get hurt relative to other types, maybe not as much. Um, but then when they do get hurt, it doesn't take too much time to just recalibrate and keep going. Yeah, you can typically bounce back pretty quick. I think it depends on where the, the feedback is coming from too. Is it like somebody that's very close to me personally or is it someone in the workplace? Like that's a huge difference. And then the other thing is, is it constructive, you know, feedback, or is it like an attack on my character? So um, the the one time I've ever only the only the I think the only time I've ever cried in the workplace was actually at um, Bridgewater at Ray Dalio's, and so they do what like they do this thing that's called like a diagnosis. So there's like a log there, or there was back then, of like anytime you screwed anything up or like you made a mistake, even if it was if it was a small one there was basically a database that anyone in the company could put a record in the database of a thing you did wrong. And so after many weeks, they would go back through all the data and they would look at like, what are like the patterns of your behavior? Like, what are you consistently kind of screwing up or whatever? And there was like one thing I got wrong like twice because I made an assumption that wasn't correct. And they pull you into like a conference room and they do this like diagnosis and it's very intense. And like most people cry <laughs> and what came of it was like they basically were like the fact that you've like gotten this wrong twice is like you just don't have intellectual curiosity like and i had like literally just left like an ivy league master's program that was very hard to hear at the time it's like i don't have any intellectual curiosity like how dare you say that and it was very that was very hard for me to hear it took me a while to bounce back from that one but that was that's the only time i, I remember feeling like really hurt at work that's intense. Do they do that with strengths as well? Where you can log in things that people are doing very well to see the patterns in their strengths? 
I don't remember that being the case, but it, it might have been. Um, the other thing is like, they believe in like really, I mean, Ray's an ENTP and he believes in like radical transparency. So every single meeting, phone call, everything is recorded and it's available to everyone. I mean, there are probably like some really high level things that like were not made available, but you could literally go in and look at or listen to audio from meetings of very senior level people, even their diagnoses, which was like, I would listen to audio of like the most senior level people crying in these meetings. And it's like, it's all in the, the name of transparency, which I, I I value. But yeah, I don't remember there being a lot of time spent on like, hey, these are like the really great things that you're doing. That's a really, really interesting point, Nee. Ooh, <laughs> cutthroat, <laughs> very cutthroat. And so I'm wondering about your leadership style. How are you like as a leader? How do you think ENTJs approach leadership differently than other types? Or how do you approach leadership differently? Well, I'm, I'm very aware that that having learned, you know, trial and error over many years that I'm, that what I try to, do, you know, when I'm trying to accomplish a goal, which is what I do in my business, I, I talk to each individual as much as I can in language that they res resonate with, as kind of indicating earlier, um, you know, I, I don't want to just dictate. It's clear I don't, I don't, because I understand people are different and I, I don't find many other, I don't know, I don't know if I know any ENTJs very much, you know, I, that I interact with. So um, I, to lead, to try to get people to do something, I definitely try to think about what their considerations are. You know, some people like the independence, they like, you know, everybody likes different things or different uh, rewards or different um, uh uh, they have different uh, things they value. Uh, so if somebody values time off, I give them more time off. I just see if they can work more on the other days and so things like that. So I, I think I'm aware of everybody else. Try to be aware of the big picture of how people are different and, and adapt to them in the, in the interest of getting the job done, you know, doing it better. Yeah, you'll notice that with some TJs, they can have a very tactful way of communicating with people. And so you're like, whoa, is that FE or is that not? And it comes from this place of, oh, like, if I treat you well, we will get this thing done more smoothly. We'll, th this thing will work more smoothly. And so you can have the same behavior, like people understanding and meeting where you're at, but it comes from different places. Like, are you doing it because you're trying to optimize the relationship and you just like have this really soft spot and you're just like connecting and is your bread and butter? Or are you doing it because you want to make things work better and you want to make the, the system better and you want to like same action can come from different motivations is what I'm trying to get at. For me, two words that come to mind is listening and asking questions. And Jeff, it sounds like that's kind of what you were speaking to, like, I feel like a lot of leaders in a lot of Western corporate culture, it's about being the loudest person in the room and being very assertive and aggressive. And I think that can be a characteristic of ENTJs or NTJs. Um, and I feel like listening to people, um, what they're saying and what they're not saying and asking questions can be very helpful uh, to get buy-in, to broaden the perspective. Um, and then once, once there's a clear understanding of the situation, and what the challenges are, I think it becomes very easy to identify what the right strategy is. And I think that's where some of that 80-20 thinking comes in. Uh, in some ways, it almost feels like the answer becomes obvious. Um, the better 
time is spent understanding what the problem is uh, or what some of the roadblocks are. Uh, so listening and asking questions is definitely something that comes to mind. And then the other one is um, painting a picture, uh, 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 crafting a vision and painting a picture and using storytelling to evoke emotions and, and pictures in people's minds. Um, I feel like that's a very powerful way of uh, inspiring and persuading people and galvanizing them uh, and, and helping people move from where they currently are now to a better world. Um, whether that's in a micro, macro sense or in a micro sense. One of my strategies when I worked corporate was always like to try to get anybody out who I felt like was like sort of relevant in my world. I'd try to take them for a beer at some point after work. That was like the time you would really get like the real nitty gritty. So take people for beers. That's my, that's my advice. <laughs> I think for me, one of the things that I've tried to focus on is leading by example. Um, and that's not to say that the goal is to do everything perfectly or anything like that, but um, more so to be really clear, not just in what I say, but also what I follow through on, um, what my priorities are. You know, if people kind of understand what the expectations are, like some of it you talk about explicitly, but some of it you also just model through your behavior. So that's something that's been important to me. Um, and then I think, you know, interacting with folks at every level of the team, like assume positive intent, you know, treat people with respect. But then if you get into situations where you're noticing that that's not mutually reciprocated, then you start to like dig in a little bit and talk about accountability and model what some of that accountability looks like. And, you know, like try to help people, like you said, me, like use storytelling to help them like see the vision for what we're all working towards. And if you're still noticing that there's resistance or something like that, you know, like then try to like try and connect with them one-on-one -on -one and figure out if you can understand like where that's coming from, if it's something that, you know, is related to work or can be addressed. One of the most frustrating things for me is if you've got a team member who is really struggling and, you know, like you as a supervisor or, you know, as a colleague, feel like you've done everything you can to try to like help them connect with them. And it's just like beyond your capability. I think for ENTJs, especially that scenario can be really frustrating too. I mean, like if, if you've really like thought through it and, and tried every tool in the toolbox and you're still like, I'm just not able to connect with this person, I think that can be a frustration. Uh, so Joyce, I think you had mentioned uh, that there is sometimes this concept of if I solve your problem, then we can work more effect effectively as a team. We'll get more more gets done if I solve your problem. Um, and uh, maybe it wasn't exactly that. And then um, Ni had mentioned about asking a lot of questions. And so I just uh, connecting those two concepts um, as a leader. Um, this is my first year as a department chair and. Uh, what I really strove to do is just show my team members that I'm following through on the support that um, that they're expecting from me, because that's really what they expect. Um, assuming that these are all professionals with degrees, they know what they're doing. They don't necessarily need me to guide them on what they need to do for their job. They really need me to support them when they're working through um you know, maybe they tried to work with such and such, and such a department on such an issue, and they ran into this 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 wall, this personal wall between them and whatever the other department is 
you know, struggling with. And, and so they get frustrated. They're like, I don't know what to do. I can't solve this problem. And so you, you just, you ask a lot of questions as Nee said, and you, uh, and you just listen. Um, and, you know, after you've done that, it's just really easy to identify what the problem is and how to solve it. So a lot of times when my teachers will come to me and they'll tell me what they're, uh, and we, you know, spelunk to find what the true problem is, it's something that can be handled by a simple email uh, a lot of times. And rather than saying, yeah, you know what, I'll contact them and say, I right there while the teacher is standing uh, at my desk, I will pull up my email and I will type the email and I'll say, does that sound like it represents your, your concern? Well, you know, um, and just asking that additional question too just shows them that I care not just about the problem. I want to make sure that I'm representing them well. Um, and you know, following, there's a number of things happening there. I'm listening to them. I'm asking lots of questions and I'm following through. And it's not that I don't care about their problems individually, but I'm not, I'm sympathizing. I'm not empathizing. You know, I'm not, I'm not feeling their, their struggle. Um, and so I'm now able to use my, my skill as a person to just solve the problem, um, which, you know, ends up making my team members feel very supported. And I think that's, um, sort of the thing that sets me and I would imagine a lot of other ENTJs apart from other leaders. Well said. And so my next question for everyone is, what are some ENTJ or just you quirks in the workplace? Like what are some things that people point out about you that is a quirk or ism that you do that they notice that other people don't necessarily do? People mention a lot that I speak super fast. <laughs> and as you have mentioned, Joyce, I do believe that that is a, uh, you know, a, a TESE uh, connection happening. Um, and so that's definitely a quirk that I bring to the table in which people have not been shy about letting me know. <laughs> I get the feedback a lot that I'm very direct, um, which is like, I mean, I've been hearing it for decades now, so I'm like, mm -hmm, okay. Um, and it's funny because like I'm in the Midwest and so like everything here is, you know, like small talk first and how's the weather and what about less and such sports team? <laughs> like others were describing here. I'm like, no, please, can we just get into it? <laughs> like, I don't care about the sports or the weather, but I get a lot of feedback that my communication style is very direct. For me, probably storytelling. Like, uh, like part of my job is to present research to my stakeholders and some of them are directors or VPs and they don't, they have so much in their mind that walking them through a bunch of research isn't necessarily the most exciting thing for them. And so using story to captivate their attention um, and, and, and to bring some lightness to the, to the presentation or dialogue is something that I think uh, a lot of my coworkers see. And that's kind of a, a neat thing is I love to tell stories uh, and weave stories into presentations or, or workshops. One thing I've noticed is uh, <clears throat> sometimes people say I'm too heavy handed, you know, too uh, aggressive. <clears throat> if I'm <clears throat> worked up about something or care about something or um, upset about something that, you know, that I'm not achieving that goal and somebody else is, is part of it. You know, um, I think my wife more than anybody has said that. And I've tried to <laughs> modify that and just give it up, you know relax and not worry about it. Um, but I think also I've noticed blind spots <clears throat> along the, the area of details. Um, I notice I have trouble uh, remembering where I put li one little item and I'm looking all over for it. I can't remember where I put things because detail, I, I don't remember them. Um, I think that's a problem. 
but you know, and and the stories too. You know, my I I, I relate to that too. You know that that sometimes that that gets something across a little better. Yeah, they say to be an effective communicator, you have to be a good storyteller too, because that's the way you captivate people's mental circuits. Because you get data points all the time, but the only way to kind of make them very convincing to the human mind is to weave it into a story. So that's a communication tip for people if you want to improve that component of your life. We need to get like a master class in storytelling from me. I don't think I have that skill, so <laughs> we need to work on it. <laughs> Back to the topic of quirks, though. I don't. Maybe it's because I don't work in like a corporate environment anymore, but. I'm really playful, like in work, like I'll do a lot of like goofy dances and I'll do like, you know, we'll like play silly music and stuff. And like when we're like, sometimes I'm very hands-on when we're doing rehabs and um, I just like to keep it fun. I, I'm like, we're going to do this anyway. Like, why don't we make it fun while we're doing it? Like, why does it have to be so serious? Let's keep it light. Um, the other thing I'm really, really into is just like kind of mentorship and like inspiring um, inspiring, especially particularly right now, like folks that are kind of like trying to break into to the industry and like, don't really know what they're doing. Like, I love to just kind of like, sit with people and chat with them about my experiences. And, and like, any, any info, like, I'm really interested in my industry, like people really play their cards, like very close to their chest. And they're like, we don't share resources, like we got to, you know, it's like some, I don't know, I got to rise to the top, like, I can't, you know, I don't, I don't know. People are silly. So I'm like, no, I'm going to be a person who is, I'm like, we're only going to get better by sharing resources. Like let's, let's do this together. And so I'm really, really interested in um, kind of helping folks um, just get into it and, and teach them the things that the lessons that I've learned and, and the knowledge that I've gained and, and the resources that I have available to me. And I think like one thing I'm learning is that I can come at like the energy that I bring to that can come across a little extra. Like it's a little, it can be a little intense at times. Cause I'm just like, I'm like, you know, I'm so excited about it. And I'm like, we can do this. Like, you know, like, look, this is, this is what we have to do. It's so simple. You know, it looks so simple to me. Um, and I, I talk to so many people and it, it doesn't seem so simple to them. And I get that. Um, but I'm trying, I'm, I'm trying to keep that in mind when I'm dealing with people more, but I think that's one of our like strengths is like mentorship and, um, there are a lot of like landlords that will um, just ask me like, oh, you know, I don't know, like, what should I do about this thing? Like, how do you know, for example, how do I make this like, I don't understand why this apartment's like not renting. And it's just like, oh, it's so simple. Like, you just need to do this, this and this and you'll be good to go. And like, that's like, I don't know, I feel like that's a service that we can offer people. Like, like I said before, to like help them cut through the, you know, the noise or whatever to find like what are the impact points and i like doing that for people and um so i don't know i don't know where i was going with that but i thought of that just now yeah it's true entjs are very good at mentoring people like me just yesterday <laughs> he was providing me advice on how to grow how to create an email list and how how big of an impact point that is he's like all right <laughs> so i i think entjs when they notice that 
there's a piece of advice that they, they could be giving you to help you level up in some sort of way. It's like a TE love language, or it's like a TE way of being a good human being. It's like, I'm gonna help you with your stuff. It's like, I noticed this could be better. And here you go, here's the information. ENTJs are very good at offering advice on how to better something, or like they see it a process that could be more efficient somewhere. They're like, oh, I'm at the airport and I saw that they could improve that, 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 or other places. They're good at spotting that. That feedback's not always taken for what it is though, right? Like we, in my life, I often find like, oh, this is such a service to people. Like I'm helping them see the inefficiencies or I'm helping them see like, you know, how they can attack this problem like so, so, so crisply. And so we have to be careful sometimes, right? How we're, how we're servicing. <laughs> Uh, so Kat, I wanted to just say I appreciate you making the comment about your quirk of being silly and wanting to do little dances here and there and just inserting these fun little, you know, maybe physical fun moments into your workday because we have that in us. Yes, we've got that. We've got that um, that fun bubbly SE in our stack and we do have access to it. Um, and um, the other ENTJs with whom I have spoken have, you know, enjoyed using that as much as I have. Um, but when we're in a work environment, which we spend, you know, a, a little around half of our waking hours, if we're sleeping eight hours a day, um, you spend eight hours in that corporate environment. Um, and it doesn't necessarily always allow for that, or the expectation is just that that's not okay. Um, and so I think that's where a lot of the, um, you know, the char the caricaturizations of ENTJs that are like the commander and the, it, there's, it's almost like you can't have fun, um, or that we aren't capable of having fun just because we want to be doing stuff all the time and we want to be making progress and it, we must be direct. And it's like, no, we also like to have fun. We're people. And we also have this, this, you know, fun sort of uh, bubbly, sometimes chaotic SE in us as well. So I appreciate you uh, representing uh, that for, or, you know, sharing that to represent us well. Yeah, there are very playful ENTJs that you'll meet too. There are also the serious ones too. So I will say like, it's a it's a divide. There are the actual stereotypical ENTJs and then there are the ones who are more laid back and chill as well. And so, yeah, Jeff. Well, I was just gonna echo that. I noticed that I joke around a lot. <laughs> I mean, it just, not so much with work, but during the day, uh, I do that a lot. And I, and I also uh, resonate with another thing you said, Kat, which is that other people don't always want the advice or they don't take it. I, I sort of feel like I've given up uh, trying to tell people how important nutrition is or how important certain things are. They're just not too, too they have their own reasons, whatever. They're just not going to, they're not me. They're not going to use my rationale to, to get to where I am. And, uh, I try a little bit and that's that, you know, that seems like all I can do. So I, I feel a little uh, discouraged, but I think that's the way the, that's the way life is and the way the world is. Yeah, it's, it's almost the golden rule. We do unto others what we would like for ourselves. So because you guys like feedback and it's like, oh, if, you, if someone notices something that I have a blind spot in, I want them to tell me because I want to make it better. It's like we automatically assume that for other people sometimes too. And we're like, hey, do you want to know this thing that you could do better? Because I would love it if you told me that. And so any other quirks? I'm just giving it time for if anyone wants to answer. Just following up on what Jeff was saying, um, one of the ways that I've sort of like, not really self, well, I mean, like maybe it's self-editing, but you know, like one of the ways that I've kind of moderated, you know, the like, would you like some feedback on that? 
is to do like really explicit check-ins with people, you know, say, may I share something that I'm noticing or, you know, like, are you open to some feedback on XYZ? And I just like say it really plainly. Um, Cause I think one of the things that's, you know, sort of like the flip side of that, like frustration or like a pain point to watch out for is, um, especially as a woman, there's just a lot of social norms and expectations, you know, that I'm available for emotional processing. And I'm like, nope, sorry, <laughs> you're going to find a different human to help you with that. It's probably not going to be me. Um, so, you know, if, if folks are in problem solving mode, great. Like I'm here for it. Maybe I have some suggestions that could help, but if they're like, if they're really inventing mode or they're needing somebody who's really needing to listen, you know, like just sort of checking in and asking that, like, or, you know, are we in listening mode or are we in problem solving mode right now? You're like, what do you need right now? Um, that's been helpful to navigate some of those conversations too. I wonder if this is something that you other guys, uh, have experienced. I don't know that I do this, but I think my father happened to have been an ENTJ. And if you mentioned certain topics, it was like you pushed a button and you're going to get a little spiel. You know, you're going to get his conclusion on this because he figured it out. And this is what he believes about it. Like the, the, the one I always remember is vanilla ice cream. He had some friends visit from Australia or something and they went to Baskin Robbins and the guy ordered vanilla ice cream. And my father thought that was the most outrageously stupid thing to do. You have all these choices of flavors and you chose vanilla. So if you mention vanilla ice cream, you're going to get that story from him. Now, I don't think I do that because I want to guard against it having grown up with that. But I wonder if it's a feature of our type that we have a conclusion about something and we're eager to tell somebody. And so if they mention a certain topic, oh, let me tell you about that because I know about it. Is that is that anything that anybody else notices? Yeah, that can be from multiple sources. It can be from the introverted feeling. So FI tends to come to like emotional judgments about like whether I like or dislike or value this thing. And then it can be very strong with that emotional judgment or conclusion, especially in the lower slots sometimes. Like there is this like impassioned rant about certain topics. And then it can also be a product of Enneagram 1. So Enneagram ones believe that there's one right way for doing something. So it's like, if you get vanilla ice cream, that is not the one right way of getting ice cream. I'm sorry. There's an, other ways are better. <laughs> so depends on the person. Yeah, but uh, what are the other ENTJ's thoughts on that? I think sometimes uh, I tend to do that if I'm not checking in with NI to really slow down and um, think about my response beforehand, because there are a lot of things that I have come to conclusions about. Um, and before I really dove in and did my NI work, I was definitely described as a, uh, you know, like a steamroller or like a bulldozer because people would come to me and they would say something that I disagreed with and they would know about it very quickly. Um, because my initial reaction wasn't to stop, to listen, to understand the core of the discussion. Really. It was just, this is wrong. I disagree. No, you're wrong. <laughs> um, and then I do find that once I started to, you know, s slow down my thinking. Um, and be less reactive and more responsive. Uh, I have that happen less. Um, however, Jeff, I will say, uh, I believe that my father was an ENTJ as well. And he had a lot of those things. Um, particularly, he was very stuck in a lot of things that he considered to be the Italian way of life. Um, and so something as simple as, um, you know, the superstition of throwing salt over your shoulder, which honestly, I have no idea what it means to be an authentic Italian because I don't even think my dad grew up in enough. Anyways, um, 
he just was so staunch about that. And um, there were times where he got legitimately angry at us because we would, you know, like spill some salt and we would not throw it over our shoulder. And it's like, dad, come on, this is just a superstition. He's like, no, that's wrong. You have to do this. Wow. <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm really curious if, if you other, if you others, I don't know if this is an ENTJ trait. I really don't. I mean, you, 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 of course, you linked it to FI, which makes sense. So I, I understand that. Yeah, it's a very uh, TJ thing. Like, there's the phrase, you're wrong. And the types that tend to say that are TJ types. Because there's something very black and white about TEFI sometimes with certain things. Jeff, to answer your question, I feel like, I don't know if I go on rants, but I feel like there are certain things that I care very deeply about and have thought deeply about them and other things where I'm like, I could care less. And so if, you know, there's a conversation that's going and it's talking about things where I'm like, oh, I don't have a strong opinion or I don't have a, a, a strong point of view on that just yet or, or whatnot. But then if there's certain topics that come up or somebody asks me in the pro, there's certain things where I'm like, yeah, I've put some thought into this and have a point of view uh, and I'm willing to share it. Um, but I don't know if it's necessarily in a rant, but then again, if it is in a rant, I mean, I'll be aware of it to begin with. Um, but I try to make it a dialogue. Um, but yeah, but so I feel like there are things I, I, I care strongly about and others that I'm like, yeah. I can definitely relate to that knee. I mean, there's, you know, like topics and experiences that I'm like, oh yes, I have like a really definitive opinion about this. And there's plenty of other things that either aren't part of my experience or, you know, like I'm aware that they exist in the world, but like they're not interesting to me. And I think sometimes people are taken aback by like, if you touch on a topic where I'm like, oh yeah, you know, like I do have a pretty strong opinion about that. I think for all of the things that sort of like throw, float through daily conversation and I don't necessarily have a lot to offer, like every once in a while, maybe you'll hit a nerve and I'll be like, no, yeah, I have an opinion about that. Like there's a way to do it and a way to not do it. <laughs> One thing that I've sort of like a reframe that I've been working on with some of that is um, especially because I work with a lot of junior colleagues, um, try not to get into a rant. Like you said, I don't know if I'm always aware if I'm doing it or not, but like there's everybody's got like, you know, 10, 15 stories from their lives that are like actual interesting life lessons that are probably worth sharing from time to time. And I try to be kind of judicious about like, Hmm, is this a moment to share like this story that was part of my experience with this person? And are they going to be able to hear it and like take something away from it that's also useful and applicable to them? Or is this just like me doing a thing where like I'm saying words that I need to say because I need to get it out of my system? So I've tried to think about it in terms of like actually sharing an experience versus just like sort of word vomiting at someone. Yeah, and that's where the moderating effect of introverted intuition comes in. So it's like, well, is this a hill I want to die on? Is this a hill I know about? Is this person going to accept this hill? It's like looking at the different perspectives of the hill. It's like, uh. <laughs> I think I notice there's a number of things that I really don't care about. Um, I'm trying to think what they are, but um, I had this girlfriend a few years ago that um, – I can't remember if it was place to eat or whatever, but she, she would say, do you want to do this or that? And I said, I don't care. And she, after a while she got mad. She said, well, care, you know, and I, there's a lot of things like you were saying me that I sort of don't care about. There's a few things I care a lot about, you know, um, but there's a whole lot of stuff that to me is, you know, not too important. I mean, um, as long as I'm eating reasonably good food, I don't care where I get it from or, um, uh, 
things like that, that, that a lot of people might care more about, might be more particular about, um, decorations on the wall or whatever. I, I mean, I want certain things, but I like certain things, but, but there's a whole lot of things I will be very flexible about. If somebody else cares, go for it, you know, no problem. But there's a few things I do care a lot about. I think, I think, I've, you know, I think you even mentioned that John. So I, I think uh, that's a, maybe a trait of ours. Jeff, you had mentioned uh, the beginning of what you just said was something like there are a lot of things I just don't care about. And that for me sparked um, another quirk that I seem to have, not just in work, but a lot of environments, is that if a piece of information is not immediately relevant, I just shoot right away. It's gone. I have no idea what even just like it's just gone because, um, you know, there's almost there's only so much space in the hard drive. Um, and if I take up the space in the hard drive with information that is not relevant, then I'm not going to have space for the things that are important. <laughs> Would you guys say that you that you resonate with that as well? So I, I, I have an experience just like, well, similar to that, where it's a whole lot of movies I've been to in my life I don't care about. I mean, I just don't care about romantic comedies or, you know. I mean, I like humor. I like I like to enjoy them. But, but um, I, I can go to a movie and come out of it, and I really can't remember a whole lot about that movie. Because I think I was thinking about other stuff that I enjoyed. You know, how am I going to plan to do this? How am I going to plan to do that? And so forth. So I, I think it's like that. Yeah, John, what you're saying resonates so much. I feel like um, sometimes I'll be having a conversation with somebody and they'll, Jeff, to use a movie example, they're like, hey, remember that actress in that movie? And I'm just like, I could care less. I don't remember the name of the actress. And they will stop the conversation until I know who the person is. And I'm like, it, whether I know who the actor is or the actress, it does not advance the narrative. Keep going. Like, it doesn't matter whether I know the person, just get to get to where you're going, but they'll stop and they'll like, well, have you watched that movie? Or they were also in this show. And I'm just like, I have no idea. I just don't care about that. That's not really my interest or genre. So, so it's very unlikely you're going to find a movie that I've seen that I remember that I cared about. And I remember that actor's name and what other movie they were in. And so I feel like when it comes to like social stuff like that, or even work where like, people will ask these like insanely detailed questions. And I'm just like, I have no idea. And if I needed to know, I'll just go find the person who has the answer and ask them when that time comes. I just don't know. And I feel like sometimes from the other person's perspective, they're gonna be like, how do you not know that? Like you've been here for X number of years or you're in this world, how do you not know that? They almost see it as a sign of incompetence. And I'm like, to me, it's a sign of competence to ignore those things and focus on the things that matter. Yeah, exactly. Like how many times in my tenure here have I needed that piece of information? You know, it's like, if you don't need it, then why, why waste the space? Oh, I feel so heard right now. <laughs> so that's an indication that someone uses NISE or SENI in whatever order, because that perception access only cares about relevant information. Whereas with the S-I-N-E access, on the other hand, it is a storehouse of all things not immediately relevant at all. <laughs> so that's how you can tell what someone's perception functions are too. It's how much do they take in what's actually relevant to the reality in, in their life or things that they're actually going to deal with or things that actually lead to something. Like S-E-N-I, to take in a piece of information, they need to know what that information is going to lead up to. Like, okay, if I know this, what is that actually going to lead up to? If it's not going to lead up to anything, then why are you learning this? And so are there any questions that you and TJs want to ask each other? I'm curious, I think, um, 
what has been maybe one of the most rewarding and if you're comfortable sharing one of the most challenging aspects of, you know, like your career path? So this is something I've gone through a bunch of times um, and that is recognizing that something that I'm doing is solely because I'm good at it and not because it resonates with me as a person. Um, and so I had mentioned that I worked for McDonald's for four years um, and I, it was hard. I mean, the, the pay was horrible. I was working there for uh, four years and after, uh, you know, that long and after getting a, a promotion to crew trainer, I was making $7 and 55 cents an hour when I left. Um, and I, I, I think because I have this tendency, as I imagine many of us do to just set and forget, like that was just my, it started in high school. That was my high school income and I couldn't seem to find another job. Um, and so I just kept going with it. And eventually I was like, why am I doing this? I don't like this. I don't, I mean, I, yeah, I'm good at it. Um, which is silly because, um, you know, it's like, I'm the only person seemingly at this in this position that seems to care to be good at it. So it's like, why am I putting so much effort into this? Um, which is eventually why I did apply at Starbucks and, you know, to get a job where, um, I'm working with a generally happier clientele, um, working in something that's a little more, um, uh, I will say in my time uh, with Starbucks, there's a lot more artistry in the craft than there ever was at McDonald's. And so that's something that I really appreciated as an individual. I am, I do view myself as an artist. And so, um, you know, I, I, there was a lot of honing my craft. There was a lot of making connections with people. And I found that that definitely resonated more with me as a human to the point where when I had to leave in November, I was actually quite upset that I had to do so. Um, and a more recent example of this is that I, uh, I had mentioned also that I got into music education because it was the more financially feasible of uh, of my two, well, more than two options, but at the time I saw it as two options, performance or education. Um, and I didn't think that I would be good enough to go into the performance field. And I also didn't feel like going through years of struggle because that's that's what a lot of artists, unfortunately, do have to um have to experience when they uh, when they go out and try to start their careers. It's a lot of struggle. It's a lot of um, fall on your face, fall on your face, fall on your face, and then eventually you start to walk. Um, and at the time, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't considering um, is education really going to align with me as a person. Um, and so, I I'm going to be making some changes here. I am starting a, a master's degree in the fall, um, and I do plan on I'm going to be moving to New York City. I'm going to be auditioning for a couple operas a couple shows here and there to be making those those changes but um that is uh definitely something that i have experienced just the um doing something because i will be good at it or doing something because it is the financially feasible option instead of doing it because it's something that aligns with my personality and my values and my morals yeah so with entjs sometimes it's really easy for them to know like what they're good at and what they're competent in and what their projects are but it's hard for them to sometimes come to terms with do i actually like what i'm doing do i actually like it and so sometimes if they're unbalanced with their introverted feeling what can happen is they don't know who they are that well or they spend so much time doing things that they forget to spend time with their relationships with some of them, not all of them, but that's like what happens when TE works too hard and gets addicted to doing what they're good at instead of what their FI cares about. I wonder about uh, how you guys uh, view your personal relationships because I, 
when I started learning about Myers-Briggs, I finally realized why I am this way, which is that I have lots of acquaintances and few very close friends. It's like I don't really need the really close friends. Um, I do have a few, but 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 what happens if, if, if a close friend wants to start talking about something I'm not interested in, that's a stress for me. I don't really want to listen to that. I don't want to be in, I don't, I'm not interested in, you know, butterflies or whatever it is, you know, some rare hobby they have. I, uh, so I realize I have many acquaintances and I like them and I like to, I love to, to get something from everybody, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. I, that's great. Uh, that I'm happy. But I wonder if you guys experience that too, that, that, uh, you don't have very many really close friends, but you do have a lot of acquaintances, which is, I think, what I hear is a def definition of being an extrovert, one of the one of the characteristics. I think for me, um, I'm probably a little bit more on the introverted side of, I mean, like ENTJs are like tend to be some of the more introverted of the E types. Um, but I definitely resonate with what you're saying in terms of. You know, there's like a few people that are I'm super close with. Um, and then there's, you know, like a lot of people that are, you know, like acquaintances or work friends or, you know, like people that I see on a regular basis. But also the conversations that we have are, you know, like they kind of follow the same pattern of the same topics. Um, for me, one of the things that I've made a point to kind of actively seek out, um, I'd say like the last couple of years is trying to look for some of those really strong and deep um, introverted intuition connections. Um, you know, like the, the more time that I've been able to spend like really in that co-pilot function and seeing it also like reflected back to me from like other people that I actually interact with in real life, my work besties in ENFJ, um, it, you know, like seeing how that function, you know, works or, you know, like how we're applying it to our work, our family life, that kind of thing. Um, having those connections with other introverted intuition users um, has been super critical. I think one of the most interesting things that I've taken away from like personality hacker materials is that distinction between, you know, the introverted functions and the sensing functions um, and just how that sort of manifests in terms of a need for like deep conversation or, you know, like just like really talking about esoteric things that not everybody is interested in. Um, so looking for those like really strong introverted intuition connections still with just like a handful of people really has been really helpful. And it definitely helped me from going totally crazy during like peak COVID lockdown. So yeah, that's been helpful for me. Yeah. So like Dana was saying, there definitely is a spectrum of, ENTJs, like some of them can be more stereotypically, like find it easy to talk with strangers or like they can be quite socially out there. But there are also ENTJs who are more on the introverted side as well. Like they don't really resonate with a lot of the extroverted stereotypes at all. And that's because like their dominant process has to do with more getting things done or efficiency, effectiveness. It's a function that doesn't doesn't have to interact with people. So the most all-encompassing definition of 
extroversion is a focus on the external world. So it doesn't necessarily have to be on people. It can be whatever the ENTJ wants to TE. The most common mistype for ENTJs is sometimes they might think that they're like an introverted type at first because they, they don't care for people. And so one of the differentiations, I don't know how solid this would be, but it's it's to kind of look at alone time. And of course, an ENTJ can love it alone time, but like focus on what they're doing when they're alone. Like, are they thinking about TE things when they're alone and thinking about how to TE better? Or are they actually doing nothing? Like when we talk about alone time that, you know, introverts need to recharge, it's actually like, it's not, it's not doing the TE, it's not doing anything. So ENTJs, I notice when they say that they need alone time, they're still kind of TEing in their head, which doesn't count as alone time because that's not true alone time. That's just you thinking about what you're gonna do once you get back into the outer world, <laughs> which is still TE. <laughs> so yeah, that's one of the ways to kind of tell your type. But yeah, any other questions you'd like to ask each other? Uh, I've got one. And so um, it seems a number of you have, uh, you know, a good number of years and experience just with being in careers and being somebody who is, um, you know, I'm only four years into my career. And so I'm curious, what are some things you've learned as ENTJs that might be, uh, you know, good advice you could give to younger ENTJs to, um, to help them grow and succeed in their career fields? Well, one thing that I've been thinking a lot of, I don't know if this is actually answering the question, but a lot and it's actually me some of your so your last podcast I've listened to I think four times now um the uh the interview that you did and also one of the sessions you did with Joyce and so you've had me thinking a lot more about my values and I think you might have even said it I think it's like with that FI component, sometimes my values feel really really they feel like such a deep part of who I am that they're hard to articulate. And so I've spent some real time lately. You've inspired me. Thank you for that. Um, I've spent some real time recently just sort of sitting down and like really drilling into like what, what are my actual values? And like, can I put words to those things? And can I, um, can I, and so I'm setting new intentions around what they are. Um, and so I don't know if this is relevant, but like, I wish that I had done that when I were younger. Like maybe if I'd done that in my twenties or my thirties, um, you know, there are certain things that I'm realizing um, where I'm spending my energy or my time that are really, really important to me. And I'm, I'm giving myself like new permission to not feel guilty for wanting that or, you know, um, or, you know, feeling any shame around like, oh, that's how I want to spend my time um, or that's where I want to put my energy. And it's helping me to kind of focus more on, you know, what should my week look like? What should my day look like? Um, what am I focusing on? So I don't know if that's helpful at all, but I wish that I had spent more time on that when I was a little younger and had a little bit more of a focused trajectory. Yeah, and so the podcast that Kat is referencing to is Nee did an interview with Personality Hacker on the ENTJ personality type, and I'll have it linked below. And so Nee, would you like to explain a little bit about that? Sure. Um... Also, Kat, I'm curious about what one of your core values are, if you're comfortable sharing any of them. Um, but the short answer is I've got a couple of close friends, um, ENFP and INFJ. Um, Jeff, going back to your question about friendships, I feel like a lot of my close friends are NFs. And so we have this annual retreat we do. And one of the things that we did, one of the uh, annual, one of the activities we did during this annual retreat, which 
was intended to help us clarify what are the goals and intentions we have for the year coming up and reflect on the year that happened uh, is this activity where we pulled out our phones and we spent about 15 or 20 minutes combing through all the photos we took for the year. And, and then what we did is we picked the ones that resonated with us uh, or in this case, like resonated with our FI. And then afterwards, we were to look at them and basically say like, what were the common themes and threads among the among what resonated with us, the photos we chose. And it was a really powerful way for me to get more clear on what's important to me. Because I think if you were to ask me or if we ask most people, you know, hey, what are, what's important to you? The answer we'll often give is the politically correct answer or what we think we should value. But this was a way of unearthing the values rather than saying like, this is what my core value is. It was more so, uh, uncovering what the core values are um, and saying like, well, the photos I'm taking are probably a, a good indication of the things that I care about because I chose to take a photo about that. Um, so let me take a look at all those photos and see what the themes are. And so that was um, the exercise that made it more clear. Jim Collins also talks about this idea in, in Good to Great of like how our core values aren't something we choose, rather it's something that we discover. Uh, and so um, hope that context was helpful. It is really helpful, yeah. And I'd recommend everyone in the audience to try that out because everyone could use FI work. And so in, in a culture of like busyness, it's really important to also check in with your FI. You guys in the audience members. So I'm wondering if you want to, feel free to look at your photos to do the activity that Ni just mentioned and to post your results down below in the comment section. I'd love to hear what are your core values? What is actually important to you? Anyone want to answer? I'll share one. Um, probably the thing that's had the biggest, uh, might be the thing that's had the biggest impact in my career is uh, I love to grab coffee with people and get advice. Uh, and I feel like there's this, I like to use the metaphor of uh, roots and fruits where the relationships are the roots. And as a consequence of building relationships for, for years, I started doing this when I was in college trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I was like, well, let me go talk to people who are doing what I think I want to do to figure out whether or not what they're doing aligns with the picture I have in my mind. And often it didn't. But I found that to be incredibly powerful. I'd meet people, I'd hear about their perspective. I'd ask them about the career mistakes they made. And then I'd ask them, hey, who are a couple other people you'd recommend I talk to that are doing something a little different or are doing something, um, something else? Um, and I found that to be incredibly powerful where those became my root system and the fruit were these organic job opportunities. Virtually every job I've had an internship came organically where people just said, here's the job. And when I look back on it, it was because of the relationships by just staying in touch with people or I read an article and I'm like, hey, this reminds me of something you shared eight months ago and I was still thinking about it. Here's the article and just building those relationships um, not only not only did I get a chance to learn so much and use NI to synthesize all these learnings from people who are wiser uh, and see some of the key learnings and see some of the key trends, um, but many of them would reach out organically and say, hey, I've got this job opportunity that you might be interested in or, or this project that I think you'd be a great fit, fit for. Uh, and so I feel like that has been incredibly powerful is building organic relationships. And then oftentimes they lead to things, but I wasn't doing it necessarily for the fruit because I can't control when they're going to reach out to me and give me a job if that's what ends up happening. I love that. I've actually been like, I sort of identified one of my 
one thing that's really important to me is um, I'm just sort of like, I'm calling it community. And that's been like spending time with um, folks that are just doing cool things that I'm not doing. Like they're involved in other worlds. You know, I spend a lot of time with people in like this whole like niche music community. And like, I, I don't play, but it's been really cool. And I've made like a lot of really cool connections in that world. Um, and then again, like a lot of the people that I'm connecting with are NF types as well. And they just have like such different things that they bring to the table than what I bring. And it's just really, really cool to, um, so I'm giving myself new permission to allow myself to just like enjoy that without agenda, you know, and just appreciate, um, and, and, and as I've gotten older, like just learning that like building relationships and maintaining relationships takes energy and it takes, um, it's easy for us to just like get caught up in like what we're doing um, and, you know, getting things done or, or, you know, making shit happen. And, you know, there's, there's some effort that you have to put into like to, to maintain relationships. And that's been really, really rewarding for me. And it's helped me stay like grounded in some really, some really like core, like rewarding relationships. And, you know, that's, that's worth it. And it's, and, and just like you said, me, like it's, it's, it's really expanded my horizons into a lot of different, a lot of different opportunities as well. And I've been able to make a lot of connections for other people as a result, um, putting that TE to use in the background. <laughs> we'll definitely echo what you both are talking about. And I would also emphasize the point that Nee made about organic relationships. And so of the friends that I know actually have six-figure jobs, a lot of them come from connections and networking. So typically there is a lot that hard work can get you, but a lot of people also get to the top two through their networks. And so I think that me always knows the most bang for your buck impact points. So I'd say it's a really good idea to listen to him because he's, he's basically a one person shop or a one person book on how to succeed at life. So, I mean, what he says really holds gravity and weight. And so anyone else would like to answer John's question about advice for younger ENTJs? I think one of the things that, you know, I've thought about a lot and probably even more so like since I became a parent is like trying to think carefully and be really intentional about how I'm showing up. Um, you know, like even TE has a finite amount of energy as much as we've all convinced ourselves <laughs> we can do everything all the time. And, you know, when I start to notice that my energy um, or my attention or, you know, however you want to think about it is like really diffused, too diffused, like there are too many TE loops happening. Um, just trying to be really mindful about, you know, how to sort of like gently pump the brakes when I'm noticing that, you know, like I'm getting kind of spiky about things, you know, and like that introverted feeling is just like chronically unhappy and dissatisfied and just like, you know, always creating messes that I then have to go back and clean up. Um, so like, you know, I, I try to be really careful thinking about like, you know, how those parts of the stack are interacting with each other. And, you know, like part of it goes back to that leading by example, but that piece of it also translates like outside of the workplace in terms of like what behaviors am I modeling, you know, for my kids you know, they're going to be six and eight next month. And so like, I mean, 
like they're real small people and they pay attention to what I do and what I say and, and how I do things. Um, so thinking a lot about, you know, sort of what that means to me in terms of how I show up as a supervisor or a manager, you know, how I'm showing up as a parent, um, you know, a partner, all those things. And just like, you know, like trying to, like me said, you know, like keep that in line with what, what my values are and, and how I want people, like, it's not an expectation, like what is the expectation that other people have, but it's like, what are those expectations I have for myself? My piece of advice is that I, at least in my case, I, I felt I wandered too much. I, I explored life too much. I explored, I, you know, I did whatever I wanted. I'd take a year off and, and, and do things I wanted. And, um, so it, it ended up being that I focused on my career much later in life and uh, kind of came to what I enjoyed much more later in life. So I think, you know, follow your bliss and, and, and focus and, and uh, commit earlier would have, would have been better for me. Uh, I think that might, you know, might be a kind of an ENTJ thing. Of The, the exploration part is kind of fun too, but it, you, you can overdo it. Cool. And thank you everyone for coming out and chatting about the ENTJ personality type. I really appreciated the advice that you give to other people, to giving them feedback so that they can succeed and they can get the thing done as efficiently and effectively as possible. <laughs> it's nice to hear about how y'all focus on the impact moments what action would cause the most leverage. So it's almost like knowing the best moves to make. It's almost knowing like what chess pieces will get you the win. And so that's starting with the end in mind. And so on some extent, it's like almost noticing, okay, if we're trying to reach this goal, then these impact moments would be the best for meeting that goal. And so it's really great like you should to kind of notice okay um, this is how we're going to meet these long-term goals and uh, this is how we're going to make it sustainable and this is how we're going to make it work we're going to make it happen and so y'all are a force to be reckoned with a force of nature <laughs> and so thanks jeff for coming out and talking to the whole crew about your work life and for running the sacramento association of psychological type it's great to have you keeping it together and keeping it well-oiled and functioning. <laughs> and so it's good. We need the, the TJs to help us make things work. So <laughs> it's good that you're there to hold it together and that everyone can enjoy psychological type more because you make sure that it stays up. So we're, we're thankful for you for that. And Dana, it's nice to hear you on the panels too, because you have like this sassier nature <laughs> that you hold back during the panels, but it's there and you have quite the spunky personality and it's, it's nice. Sometimes I see little bits of it and I'm like, yeah, you have a little bit like of this punch, but it's like a nice, it, it, it keeps things refreshing. So you have a very refreshing personality. <laughs> And it's good to have like the representation of ENTJs who have this like relationship with introversion and extroversion that's a little bit more complex because I think a majority of ENTJs can also go through that struggle. So it's like, oh, so you, you help dispel any stereotypes around that area by existing. So it's cool. Yeah. And Kat, it's nice to have you on panels. Thanks for always coming on again and again. You have a very Enneagram 3 energy to you, so it's nice to have that representation of ENTJ. And you also have a fierceness to you too with your red, your red, orange, you know, sassy hair, you know. You, you can always like 
depict the fiery personalities by their fiery hair choice. So it's really great to see you running your empire of real estate. And so that's great. You do a great job. And me, thanks for coming on the panels too, for offering your wisdom nuggets. You're like the wise sage of ENTJs. And so you offer these pieces of advice that can aid people for the rest of their life. And so you really do give people perspective because you're able to zoom out and say like, this is what really matters. And you're like helping people along the path for those FI improvement tips. They're really good. And John, it's really good to have you on. You have this expertise in whatever job you commit yourself to, like you have to be good at it. And so you, you always have this like extreme competency. In McDonald's, you made it to like the top of that competition of like, who is the best like McDonald's staff and you're able to like do all of the activities like the most efficiently and effectively. And so like you, you're very good at that TE of just killing it with, with doing things. It's, it's good. It's an, it's an art and craft in itself. It's nice to see like the more artistic side of ENTJs too, because you're more in that area. So it brings out that flair, that flavor of ENTJ. So that's nice. And John also wrote an article on Personality Hacker. And so I'll have that linked below too, if you want to check it out. Ni nee also wanted to talk about his upcoming coaching for women and minorities in technology. And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, I'll be super brief. Um, so for a while I've been doing coaching and a lot of the people that I end up working with are minorities and women uh, because of some of the, just the added challenges in the workplace or trying to find the right role. And so if you're a minority or woman and you are, you work in tech uh, or in a field that's related to tech and you're in a place where you're struggling to find the right role or want some guidance or perspective on how to find the next role, um, I'd be happy to do uh, just a free call uh, and hear about some of your challenges and goals and offer any tips that might be helpful. And so I've just got a, a form that you can fill out that Joyce is gonna link to at the bottom. Um, but I found out something that's very uh, meaningful work for me and it's part of my personal mission. And so, yeah, if anybody has that need or wants to just share perspective or, or get some uh, insights, happy to hop on a call. And so the Google form will be linked below. Some of the things that I'm gonna really take away from the panel is the roots and fruits thing that you mentioned, Ni. It's so pivotal and it, you put it into such a concise NI nugget. It's like the concept can be summed down into like, cause NI is all about like distilling things down or like it's almost about this process of when you boil this all down, it comes down to this. And so you're good at packaging that. And the other thing that I would, I'm really gonna take home to is when Kat was talking about sharing resources because a lot of people nowadays, like they can have a selfish mentality. So to have someone who's like, no, you should share your resources is a very nice way of looking at life in a way that it makes the workplace look less. Everyone is in it for themselves and it makes it more of an, an actually like healthy place to be in. So that was good. And so thank you everyone for watching. I'll see you all in the next episode. Bye. I've learned to slam on the brake Before I even turn the key Before I make the mistake Before I lead with the worst of me Give them no reason to stare No slipping up if you slip away So I got nothing to share
No, I got nothing to say. Step out, step out of the sun if you keep getting burned. Step out, step out of the sun because you've learned, because you've learned. On the outside, always looking in, will I ever be more than I've always been? Cause I'm top, top, topping on the glass. I'm waving through a window. I try to speak, but nobody can hear. So I wait around for an answer to appear. Well, I'm watch, watch, watching people pass. I'm waving through a window. Can anybody see? Is anybody waving back at me? start with stars in our eyes We start believing that we belong But every sun doesn't rise And no one tells you where you went wrong Step out, step out of the sun if you keep getting burned Step out, step out of the sun Because you learned, because you learned On the outside, always looking in Will I ever be more than I've always been? Cause I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass Waving through a window Well, I try to speak, but nobody can hear So I wait around for an answer to appear While I'm watch, watch, watching people pass can anybody see? Is anybody waiting? When you're falling in the forest and there's nobody around, do you ever really crash or even make a sound? When you're falling in the forest and there's nobody around, do you ever even crash or even make a sound? When you're falling in the forest and there's nobody around, do you ever really crash or even make a sound? When you're falling in a forest and there's nobody around, do you ever really crash or even make a sound? Did I even make a sound? Did I even make a sound? It's like I never made a sound. Will I ever make a sound? On the outside, always looking in Will I ever be more than I've always been? Cause I'm tap, tap, tapping on the glass Waving through a window Will I try to speak but nobody can hear? So I wait around for an answer to appear While I'm watch, watch, watching people pass Waving through a window Can anybody see? Is anybody waiting back at me?